I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah 31, our sermon text, will run from verse 31 through verse 34. Before I read God's Word, I ask that you would please pray with me. Our great Father in heaven, how we thank you that you are the God who has decreed whatsoever comes to pass. Every ounce of every human event is foreknown by you and determined by you. We thank you especially for the decree of our salvation. And that not only have you planned the history of redemption, but you have foretold it in the scriptures. That in the fullness of time when Christ came, all of your people might know that you are God. We pray that we would know it today. We pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would illumine our minds, we might behold the glory of our Savior as we prepare to commune with him at his table. Thank you for this text, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word written for you and for me this morning. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. From approximately 1970 to 2010, all 50 states in our union passed laws allowing for so-called no-fault divorces. As you may know, a so-called no-fault divorce is one in which a marriage is said to be irretrievably broken, and neither spouse is required to show in a court of law the wrongdoing of the other. As people touched by divorce know, however, there is never no fault in a human divorce. There is so often some fault on all sides. But in a no-fault divorce, the couple need only affirm that their marital differences are insoluble, that they are unfixable. End of story. It's widely agreed that no-fault divorce laws make for shorter and more streamlined divorce proceedings. Now, the marriage is simply broken. It can't be fixed. There's no hope for reconciliation. And however much expedited divorce proceedings have been due to no-fault laws, indeed however much marriage itself has been diminished in our culture, when the marriage covenant is between God and his people, it is never a no-fault situation. It might be surprising to you to know that God has experienced divorce, as it were. Verse 32 at the end of our text says that God was the husband of Israel his bride, and that Israel had broken his covenant with them. 
In the case of God's covenant with human beings, in every case of his covenant with human beings, fault exists. And that fault lies squarely on one side, the side of the sinner. Now, you can imagine a Christian marriage where, at least theoretically, this could happen, where all the fault lies on one side. Imagine a godly spouse uh, seeking to fulfill his or her duties, vows, and that spouse is suddenly grievously betrayed, uh, wounded, and abandoned. Uh, maybe you've experienced something like this in your own life, or, or maybe you've known somebody who has. The worst part about this kind of situation is that the, the now abandoned spouse is absolutely helpless to change the other person and actually bring about reconciliation. All that's left is a broken marriage, a broken vows, and a broken heart. But I want to tell you something good this morning. While God is never at fault in a broken covenant, God is never helpless in the face of our own faithlessness to Him. However awful and persistent and defiant and extensive have been His people's sins, however painful the consequences of our own sins have been in our own lives, however hopeless a situation may appear in your own life, maybe even this week, God is never bound by such a tragedy. In addition to being always faithful and always good, God is able to overcome the faithlessness of his people to restore and secure a covenant bond with us forever. You ask me how I know this, it is because of our text this morning from Jeremiah. Jeremiah's famous prophecy of the new covenant. If you've been with us throughout the communion season services this weekend, you'll know that we've been looking at Old Testament anticipations from the prophets of the new things that Christ would bring. The new kingdom that he would inaugurate in his life and death and resurrection. We, we've looked on Friday at Ezekiel 36 and God's promise to give his people a new heart by the power of the resurrected Christ through the Holy Spirit. In Isaiah 62, we saw how God promised to bestow a, a new name upon his people in the context of an everlasting marriage bond in union with Christ. We saw just this morning over in Sunday school, Psalm 96 and the call for the church to sing a new song, a song that celebrates the worldwide salvation that Jesus has brought. Again and again, the prophets of the Old Testament anticipate the forgiveness and the renewal and the refreshment and the blessing that come through Jesus Christ. So when Jeremiah speaks of the new covenant here in chapter 31, he's gathering up all the threads of forgiveness and redemption and renewal under a single heading. All of God's promises of permanence and power, the very power of heaven and on earth, the unchanging glory of God revealed in history. And he's doing it under the heading of this new and eternal bond uh, sealed with the blood of Christ. So Jeremiah 31 is important for that reason. It's gathering up so many themes of our Bible. Indeed, we could look at other themes in the Old Testament. For example, in Isaiah 43, when God says he will do a new thing, uh, when he will make a covenant of peace, all of it comes to a head in the new covenant of which Jeremiah speaks. You know what a covenant is in the Bible. It is a solemn bond. It is a relationship that God establishes with people 
a bond that involves promises and obligations and blessings and curses. And preeminently, in the covenants that God makes with his people, God, as it were, takes himself in hand and gives himself to us as our blessedness and reward. He does it by grace on this side of the fall. He does it through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this idea of covenant in the Bible is so comprehensive that especially when the new covenant is set over against the old covenant, that is the covenant that God made with Israel at Sinai, this word pretty much comes close to describing all of redemptive history. In fact, this verse in Jeremiah 31, the new covenant, is the only place in all of the Old Testament where those specific words are used together, new covenant, but the themes are coming to a head. And when you realize that another translation of the Hebrew word for covenant is testament, you begin to see that this verse in Jeremiah 31 also helps to explain why our Bibles are structured the way that they are. We have an Old Testament and we have a New Testament. Well, Jeremiah 31 is important in other ways as well. Uh, one little fact is that it's the longest Old Testament quotation in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 8. A portion of it is also quoted in Hebrews chapter 10. And then finally, Jeremiah 31 is particularly appropriate, I think, for us this morning because it is the text that Jesus had in mind when he instituted the Lord's Supper, when he instituted with his disciples on the night when he was betrayed, the new covenant meal of the supper that we'll celebrate this morning. Well, my question to you is, why does God summarize everything that Christ brings in terms of this new covenant? Why is this the dividing line in our Bibles? Why does the book of Hebrews focus so much on the, the supremacy of the new covenant? Why did Jesus speak of this covenant on that fateful night when he celebrated the supper with his disciples? And I would pose this to you, that it's all because in the new covenant, through Christ, God overcomes Israel's faithful, faithlessness. And through the new covenant, God realizes the essence of the purpose for which we were made, union and communion with God forever, the knowledge of him, the opportunity to glorify and enjoy him forever. Friends, this morning, if you can grasp the new covenant, you'll understand why Christ came. I believe you'll live with greater assurance in the salvation that he has won for you if you've received it through faith. This is one of the benefits of covenant theology, Christian assurance. And you'll see more vividly the glory of God in your redemption. I want to look at this verse, uh, this text with you in two parts. Notice in verses 31 and 32, God introduces the new covenant and he contrasts it with the old. And then in verses 33 and 34, God God spells out the blessings and benefits of the new covenant itself. Here's how I want to summarize these two points. First, the new covenant, notice, comes in the context of faithless disobedience. It comes in the context of faithless dis disobedience. And we must ask right away, whose faithless disobedience is in view? Well, verse 31 is very clear. Most narrowly, Jeremiah is speaking of the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And God specifically mentions their fathers. God is referring to the descendants of Abraham, whom he brought out of the land of Egypt as his chosen nation, 
bore them on a holy arm, brought them to himself, and covenanted with them way back at Mount Sinai. We read in Exodus 19, God speaking these words to his people, If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What God designed for Israel was, again, nothing less than communion with himself, the God of glory. And we need to remember this morning that this is exactly what you were made for. From the moment of your conception, you were made for God. This is why we are so often dissatisfied with the things of this world. It's because, because what Augustine said is true. When he prayed to God, you, you have made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless until they rest in you. But now Jeremiah, the so-called weeping prophet, writes by inspiration of the Spirit. He writes just before Babylon crushes Judah into the dust. And through Jeremiah, God pulls no punches. Through Jeremiah, God points out the sin of Israel that led to their exile. For example, back in Jeremiah chapter 2, God says to his people, What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me? and went after worthlessness and became worthless. God is indicting Israel for their false religion, for their love of the world, for their blatant idolatry. And verse 32 of our text refers to all of this as the broken old covenant. The text says the covenant made on that day when God took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. God says, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Allow me to say just a few things about this Old Covenant. There are some who would say that the Old Covenant with Israel was utterly devoid of gospel grace, that it should be sidelined uh, to the trash heap in light, of the, in light of the New Covenant. Because in its essence, allegedly, uh, the, the Old Covenant was essentially a covenant of works. I want to suggest to you that this is not the case. Now, the Old Covenant was not devoid of gospel grace. Indeed, the whole arrangement with Israel was built upon grace. You may remember that God redeemed Israel out of slavery in Egypt. Our text here in verse 32 says that God took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. God was their husband. Indeed, he was a generous husband. He was generous with them as he is with us, as he, as he gives us all of the means of grace that the church enjoys, word, sacrament, prayer. Well, he gave Israel all kinds of means of grace as well. Uh, we, we call them uh, symbols and types and shadows. He gave them the Passover meal. He gave them an elaborate sacrificial system, ritual laws, all of it meant to facilitate fellowship with him through faith. In short, the Old Covenant with Israel was an administration. It was an implementation of what, of what theologians call the Covenant of Grace. And the Covenant of Grace was inaugurated right after Genesis 3, and it had Christ as its center and as its goal. So the problem wasn't the Old Covenant itself. The problem was the people. The people refused to believe and obey God's saving promises. The people refused to lay hold of the person and work of Christ as it was vividly displayed to them in their own day through types and shadows. It was this covenant that verse 32 says they broke. 
in their faithlessness. They became insatiable for sin. We see this in the decline of Old Testament Israel. And, and again, for that reason, they were exiled. And we should note personally that, that Israel's faithless disobedience was really a, a picture of the faithless disobedience of the whole world, of the entire human race. The sinfulness of Abraham's children was a, was a national echo of the sinfulness of Adam's children. In fact, Israel's sin and exile from the Holy Land of Canaan was, was itself a, a grand national replica and display of Adam and Eve's own sin in the original Holy Land, in the Garden of Eden. And it was Adam's fall that indicts us all, for we were all united to him in his first transgression. This is why Isaiah says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. So as we read of the history of Israel and about Israel's faithless disobedience, as the context into which God is now going to make a new covenant, we need to understand this in very personal terms. It's not just a, a nation falling into sin then and there. It's a, it's a record. It's a mirror of our own sin. For all of us by nature, lost communion with God. And it's this tragic and persistent and defiant and extensive covenant-breaking sin that has divorced, that has provoked our divorce from God, all the way from the beginning in the covenant of works in the garden. And it's into this context in Israel's history that Jeremiah 31 pierces the darkness like a beam from heaven. If the new covenant comes in the context of Israel's and, frankly, our faithless disobedience, the second thing we want to note here is that the new covenant overcomes such faithless disobedience with staggering blessings. Notice all that God lists here. We can summarize what God says in verses 33 and 34 under the heading of five blessings. Five blessings, and, and all of these blessings are the things that, that Christ himself brings in his saving power. The first blessing is reunion. Reunion. In verse 31, notice God speaks of the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And if you remember Old Testament history, those houses were houses divided. Divided under Rehoboam, Solomon's son. The kingdom of God in the Old Testament suffered a great split, a division, because ultimately of, uh, because of Solomon's heart turn away from the Lord. But in verse 33, God says he's going to make this new covenant simply with the house of Israel. Uh, one nation, one race. This is even clearer in Jeremiah, the idea of reunion among the people of God. Jeremiah 3.18 says, In those days, that is in the future days of the new covenant, the house of Judah shall join the house of Israel, and together they shall come from the land of the north to the land that I gave your fathers for a heritage. Well, a kind of reunion happened in a preliminary way when God uh, defeated Babylon through Persia and, and allowed the people of Judah to return to the promised land. They, they were reunited, we might say, with the land that God had given them. But God was, of course, planning to fulfill this promise of reunion in an even greater way. And he has begun to do it as he gathers people from every tribe and tongue and nation to the Lord Jesus Christ through faith. 
You experience a reunion of sorts with God himself when you flee to Christ for your salvation. Paul says in Galatians 3, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And one of the great benefits of, of people of God being united to Christ and reunited with the God of, from whom they have been alienated is that, is that in the church sometimes the, some of the radiating damage of sin can be repaired. We can experience new peace with other believers grounded in our union with Christ. We have a solid basis for reconciliation and reunion with other people. We have hope for peace and for repentance and for mutual forgiveness. We have opportunity to, to declare to the world the unity of the church across ages and ethnicities and preferences and personalities, for we are one new man in Christ. Well, the second benefit of the new covenant beyond reunion is, is rebirth. Rebirth. Notice this is how God overcomes the faithless disobedience resident in our own dead hearts. God regenerates the heart. Notice what he says in verse 33. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. Now friends, th this is something that, that in themselves the types and the shadows and particularly the commands of the old covenant uh, could never do. The law that we read earlier, uh, Dr. Johnson said, we, we, we read it this morning in the context of a mirror that shows us our sin. Uh, this is what the law could do. It could instruct, but it could not transform in the Old Testament. It, it, it could expose sin, but it could not save. And all of the commands of God under the Old Covenant were also foreshadowing the perfect righteousness and obedience of Jesus Christ to come. The law of Moses for the people of God who refused to believe on the Christ to come, however, became a, a mirror, a, a deadly mirror that exposed their sin. Like when you go to a, to a hotel and they've got that magnifying mirror and you realize, do I really look like that when I look in, into the mirror? But in the new covenant, when, when Christ pours out the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit blows where he wishes and, and brings the word deep into your heart, God makes you alive to the things of God so that, so that now you want to obey God. The law of God is now your friend. This is how Ezekiel put it. God says, I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Well, what Ezekiel says God is going to do in the heart Jeremiah is putting in different language in terms of the law written on the heart. But both prophets are referring to how, how in Jesus Christ we have new power, we have new freedom. We can say with the psalmist, oh how I, I love your law, even as I fight against my own indwelling sin. Every ounce of the Christian life, every ounce of desire for God, every prayer, every act of obedience, every song sung for His glory, all of it is a miracle of the regenerating and sustaining power of God. So I want to ask you this morning, do you have any conviction for sin? Do you have any desire to honor God in your relationships? Uh, this is the very power of the new covenant, the power of Christ at work in your heart. Now we could ask another question. Does this mean that Old Testament saints were never regenerated? If regeneration is a benefit of the new covenant, what about those under the old? Well, I think the best answer is given by, uh, by Calvin. 
Calvin says this, to, to this I answer, that the fathers who were formerly regenerated obtained this favor through Christ, so that we may say that it was, as it were, transferred to them from another source. The power then to penetrate into the heart was not inherent in the law, but was a benefit transferred to the law from the gospel. Now, that is the power of the risen Christ was at work beforehand to renew even hearts of Old Testament saints and make them alive to God on the basis of Christ's future work. Well, reunion, rebirth, third benefit, reconciliation. Reconciliation, the forging of this bond with God and his redeemed image. Uh, this was the design of the covenant. God's unbreakable bond with his people was actually the goal of the original covenant of works. And it is now the goal of the covenant of grace on this side of the fall. And here God is declaring that in the new covenant all of this comes to pass. Summarized in these words, I will be their God and they will be my people. This is the sum and substance of what the new covenant brings. That in Christ God comes near to us and he takes us as his own forever. God withdrew from Israel during the divorce as it were. But God makes it very clear that the warmth of his steadfast love never departed from his people. His love was climactically revealed in the giving of the person of Christ. It was, it was active in Christ's own death and resurrection. And, and on the far side of Pentecost, that same love was poured into your heart if you know him. Paul says we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. God's love has been poured into our heart by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So you can take the highest conception that you have of, of world-forgetting, heart-pounding love. You can remove from it everything momentary and imperfect. You can put in the divine instead of the human, and you will have a faint image of the kind of exclusive devotion between God and the creature that the new covenant is working out today. So reunion, rebirth, reconciliation. Fourth, Recognition. Recognition. Verse 34. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Jeremiah is clear that during the Old Covenant, the people of God in their unbelief were hostile to one another. They were ruled by a spirit of selfish pride, uh, the kind of selfish pride we see everywhere in the world today. And there was particular hostility, even deception, among the people of God in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 9.4 says this, Let everyone beware of his neighbor, and put no trust in any brother. For every brother is a deceiver, and every neighbor goes about as a slanderer. But again, God is declaring that in the New Covenant all this will be different. By the rebirth of the Holy Spirit, by the reunion that he brings in Christ, by the reconciliation that the people would experience with God. God says that all in the covenant community will, will know the Lord, will know him intimately and exhaustively. Now, does this happen today? Are, are the youngest children among us who are still learning the gospel and being called to trust in Christ, are they, are they not in the new covenant? Well, of course they are. And the book of Hebrews helps us unpack this, this reality. In Hebrews 10, where, where 
the author quotes Jeremiah 31, he ends up exhorting his readers to hold fast to the confession of our hope. And the implication again and again in Hebrews is that there are, there are some who are under the new covenant, who are under the dominion of Christ and under the terms of the covenant, who do not yet possess the blessings of the new covenant through faith in Christ. But a day is coming, God says, when, when everyone who is under the new covenant will know the Lord, will know him in truth, where every elect covenant child will be brought to faith and every false professing Christian will be sifted out as billions upon billions call upon the Lord. Today, yes, the church is, is by schisms rent asunder, by heresies distressed, but in the new covenant, the saints their watch are keeping, and their cry goes up, how long? And Jeremiah is telling us here that soon the night of weeping will be the morn of song because Christ will return and he will sift the wheat from the tares and the sheep from the goat. And there will come a day when scripture is no longer necessary and when all of our worship by faith will be turned to worship in the mode of sight. And Jesus Christ will stand with his glorified bride and he will say, here I am and the children you have given me. Well, how is it that a scattered people will be united? How is it that hardened people will be reborn? How, how is it that a wicked people will be reconciled to God and dwell with him forever? Well, the final blessing explains it, doesn't it? We've seen rebirth, reunion, reconciliation, recognition, and fifth and finally, release from sin. Remission from sin. Verse 34, for I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. Here it is. God is the faithful husband. He overcomes the faithless disobedience of his people. He overcomes the guilt of our covenant breaking. He overcomes our otherwise hopeless condition. And he does it through a stunning work of grace that displays his resplendent majesty. And this is what brings us to all that the Lord's table signifies this morning. All that it signifies concerning the life and the death and the resurrection of, of King Jesus. He is the faithful son. He is the true Israel. He is the one on whom the Lord laid the iniquity of us all. And he has now risen from the dead. And I think we can say that all of the, the new covenant blessings that we list here in Jeremiah are true of Jesus. He has been reunited in his own way with his father in heaven at the right hand of of the throne of majesty. He, he is knowing and walking in new life in the spirit, clothed in the power of heaven itself. He has unprecedented as a man, unprecedented fellowship with his father, intimate knowledge of the father in his glory. All of these things are, are but the garments that clothe Jesus in our flesh in heaven this morning. Jesus has entered into that unbreakable covenant bond with his Father in heaven through his work as our Redeemer and Mediator. He has endured the throne, uh, the sword of judgment, and he is now enthroned at the center of heaven, and he has fulfilled every jot and tittle of the law, and he knows the Father like no one else, and he reveals the Father to all whom he chooses. You see, in Christ, God has overcome our faithless disobedience because Christ himself has overcome sin's penalty of hell and death and divorce from God. And if you receive and rest in him alone as he's offered to the gospel, in the gospel, Jesus conveys all of these blessings 
to you today as you think about the worst that you can do, as you think about the worst that you have done, as you think about every accusation that the evil one can throw to you, as you think about every doubt that the Lord could save you and and all the reasons why the divorce should be final, you may look this morning by faith to the resurrected Lord of glory. You may look to Jesus Christ who clothes you through faith in these new covenant blessings, who, who indeed even gives you the faith that you need to receive these blessings, perhaps even for the first time this morning. And brothers and sisters, if you are joined to Jesus, there is nothing that will dissolve your covenant bond with him. Not, not death, not life, not any angel or ruler, nothing present, nothing in the future, no power, neither height nor depth, Nothing in all of creation can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So as you you come by faith and commune with him at the table, you can say in your heart, even sing with your lips, "'Tis mine, the covenant of his grace, and every promise mine, all sprung from everlasting love and sealed with blood divine. On my unworthy favored head its blessings all unite." more numerous than the stars, more lasting and more bright. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for the unspeakable, everlasting, heavenly blessings poured out through Jesus Christ in the new covenant. We thank you for not only declaring these things in the word written, but in displaying these things in the sacrament of the table. Father, as we take the elements in hand, we pray that the truths and the heavenly realities they represent would be sealed upon our hearts as we feed upon Christ, crucified and raised, the King of glory, in whose name we pray. Amen.